Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George, the podcast. I'm Mittens, and today, unfortunately, we have a lot of stuff that I feel is, well, maybe fortunately, we have a lot of stuff that I feel is really important to understanding this episode, the early episodes of Supernatural, and how it came to be the show that we all watched in later seasons. This episode has a lot of technical issues with it and a lot of shuffling that happened with it because, I mean, it's aired as episode seven, but it was originally supposed to air as episode three of the entire series um, after the pilot and then Bloody Mary, which didn't even air until episode five. So there was a lot of technical difficulties. This was apparently the first episode that they attempted to film after the pilot uh, the first episode they filmed in Vancouver, so there was a lot of restructuring of, of how things got done, finding their groove and how to make an episode of Supernatural. A director that this is the only episode he ever directed to the point where Kim Manners was called in to give the guy a hand because apparently the original director, David Jackson was unable to get the sort of fear reaction that they were going for in the episode. And it that really shines through in the outtakes on the DVDs. There's multiple outtakes for this episode that show entirely different scenarios of the date at the beginning of the episode where Lori's in the car with her, her date and he's, Make, putting the moves on her and everything. It's an entirely different scene. And apparently all of that was reshot. Like her outfit is different. The car is different. It's in a different location. The whole staging of that scene is entirely different. And it shows that the director was really not familiar with the horror genre or the myths, um, the the urban legends that this episode was based on. So I'm really glad they brought in Kim Manners for this. I mentioned last week that um, last week's episode, Skin, was the first episode written by John Scheiben, who had original, who before Supernatural, he had written a lot for the X-Files and... It was the director of the pilot episode in Wendigo, David Nutter, who recommended that Kripke get in contact with John Scheiben to help him flesh out the world. Mel posted a bunch of links to X-Files scripts last this past week and tagged in an article uh, about how the studio had wanted Kripke to bring in someone to help, quote unquote, I'm I'm reading this off of Mel's post. The studio also wanted Kripke to bring in someone to help build the mythology, to build stories, to work with the writers. And David Nutter told him uh, to get John Scheiben. So Kripke did. And that worked out really well because you can see it in, in this episode, how the mythology is built out differently. Like if we think of Kripke's original five, uh, five episode post pilot, Uh, pitch to the network this being the second episode after the pilot with bloody mary having been the first with that totally different mythology involved in the in the bloody mary case that we took we discussed in the when we did that episode 
the mythology discussed in the Hookman episode in Kripke's pitch from June 3rd, 2005 is very, very different. The episode would have opened with the scene of Laurie waking up to her roommate dead and then Sam and Dean trying to find John, but also then because that was a big deal still, the you know, the third episode of the series, that of course they're still trying to find John, but also Sam, only two episodes out from having left college, is now going back to a college. It's not his college, but a college and, and being right at home in that environment. I talked about the laptop that everybody always says is Sam's laptop. But if you go back to these earliest episodes, it's really clear that it was Dean's. Dean is the one who uses it the most. Dean is the one who is comfortable using it for research. Dean is the one who's using it for research in the first scenes that we see of Sam and Dean in this episode. And I'll talk about that when we get there. But largely, this episode remains similar to what Kripke's original pitch was for it, that the murders revolved around this girl, Lori, and they both feel, Lori and Sam form a connection because they both feel like they're cursed and people they care about end up dead or in danger. So that part of it didn't change. That part of it remained solid. But every other aspect of how this case now settles in when it's not the third episode of the series, but the seventh, when they're so far out past Sam having left Stanford and having broken off his relationships with his college friends in the previous episode, it almost feels like because of the way this episode had to be shuffled out of order, that it feels weird for him to have just lost his relationship with his college friends in the previous episode. And now he's back at a college and having to really feel how alien it is a space for him now that he has lost his connection to that world. So that, that make that makes Sam's character to me a lot more interesting in this episode than if it had just been, yeah, this is Sam just being Mr. College guy, feeling comfortable here still, hasn't lost his own connection with this world yet. So I appreciate, I kind of appreciate that it got jumbled out of order and, and that things were difficult because as I mentioned a few weeks ago when I discussed Jerry Wanick's interview where he talked about filming this episode and trying to find a an aesthetic for the show and there were a lot of difficulties with the directorial process that they ended up needing to reshoot a lot of scenes later on, and that's why it got bumped in the first place. Scenes had to be rewritten. I don't know if anybody has seen the outtakes from this episode, but the one I described, it's basically the entire shot of the date montage where the hook man comes and kills Lori's date. The dialogue is different. The way her character is presented is different. Her outfit is different. The whole setup to it has clearly changed, and even her boyfriend the the setup to that is entirely different. So we don't know what it would have been in the original version because we only got that one outtake. Another outtake we get, um, we get two other outtakes in this episode, but I'll discuss them when we get there because it'll be easier to understand the references and what I'm talking about when we get there. One last thing before I move on from talking about John Shivan. Apparently the question he posed to Eric Kripke in helping to helping him to flesh out this imaginary world that he was building was, can you build a boat 
that will still float, but without all its pieces, because there are discoveries that are going to be made along the way. There'll be characters that you stumble on. And that was the quote that was in this article. But how, you know, we always talk about how they try and leave everything as open-ended as possible. Like they'll throw down some mythology, but they may never expand on it, or they may leave it to our imaginations as to how that case resolved or what happened in this situation or what happened at that location. We may never find out, but it leaves openings in the world. Like later, I've, I've written about this one a lot, but like the Campbell library in, in season six, they go back to it at, at some point, but we're never really told or shown that the Winchesters went back and maybe brought all those books to the, to the bunker. We can assume they may have, at some point in canon, they could have said, we need to get that. That was in the Campbell library and they have to drive back there and get it. And we get to revisit that location. Or maybe we'll find out, oh, they moved the entire Campbell library to the bunker or they found Bobby's warehouses and brought his books to the bunker. We, they left that open as something that we could potentially discover or explore or use as a resource later on. And that's the concept that John Scheiben was setting up for Kripke. And I'm grateful to him for that because a lot of people complain about these things being loose ends or plot holes or unaddressed things. And it's like you can't flesh out everything in a story, especially in an open canon where they had no idea how long they would have to tell these stories. Would they have a one season? Would they have 10 seasons? Would they have 30 seasons? I mean, they just had no idea. And it's better to always leave options open rather than closing every possible door behind you and burning every narrative bridge behind you. So things that are like not earth shattering or grant, you know, that will destroy the narrative if they're left open. And yes, sometimes that does happen too, but mm, we'll talk about those things when we get there. But overall, it's a good thing to be able to have this living world, this place full of unanswered questions that maybe don't directly affect the characters in this moment. But three weeks from now, you never know, maybe they'll be important again, and we'll have a resource handy, we can go back and pull something from this location, or bring back that character. It's, it's good to have this in an open canon with no posted end date. Obviously, now that it is a closed canon for now, unless they decide to make more episodes, it's kind of frustrating sometimes when we stumble across these things that are still unmade pieces of the boat, as you will. Um, but I, I personally find them doors to fan fiction. You know, those little holes in the story that we can fill however we like. And it doesn't really affect the larger narrative to just imagine whatever we want in these places. And I credit John Scheiben and his joining the writing staff as early as he did, and Eric Kripke basically using him as a resource on how to run a show and took so much from him. So he is such an important writer to this series, and I'm really glad that we're getting to talk about his episodes in more depth now. This episode is also really the first one that begins to touch on Sam and Dean's respective attitudes towards faith towards religion. And granted, if it had aired 
third if it had aired as the third episode shortly after Jess's death as Sam has just really begun to leave college and leave his you know but still hadn't come to any sort of resolution over Jess's death and is still struggling to find John and to find Jess's killer it it comes across a lot different than as something that happened six episodes later like maybe two months later where they're both coming at this after a, a sort of healing period not not that anything could have healed Sam from Jess's death at this point but he's got a little bit of time and space from her death but we are seeing their their both of their reactions to religious faith and religious guilt and in an episode where it's very clear that even though Dean uses these symbols of faith in his life as a hunter he doesn't really put any faith in them He's not religious himself, clearly. But Sam is at least respectful enough of the religious to follow their beliefs. And I mean, obviously, we'll find out later down the line that Sam is actually has some deep personal faith where Dean is just like, why? There's nothing to pray to. And that difference in their approach towards faith and people of faith is really clear and starts forming in this episode. Also, the themes of punishment for one's sins and what constitutes a sin and infidelity, which was the subject of the woman in white in the pilot episode, which if this had originally aired third would only be two episodes later. And already Sam's infidelity is being called into question again by another ghost as a ghost that punishes people for their sins and in this case specifically vice and infidelity is kind of putting that on him again um, very shortly after Jess's death but at least now we have a bit of a buffer zone between that and I'm sure I'll have a lot more to say about all of these subjects at the end or even during the episode but at this point it's time to go back to our then segment and the 22 years ago their lives fell apart opening montage and we're going to watch Jess burn on the ceiling yet again and then go to our cold open at East Iowa University again a place that does not exist in our universe but does in the supernatural universe so Yet again, we're reminded this is not our world. It's subtle because, you know, most people might not even notice that this place doesn't exist in our world, but it doesn't. So in the cold open of this episode, we meet Lori and her roommate, who's just lounging in her college dorm room or their sorority room, wearing a sparkly top and a mini skirt, just lounging on her bed, reading a magazine. And it's like, who hangs out in their room like that? Like fully made up, like they were getting ready to go out and yet just lounging there like that. It's just, it's, it's just a weird thing. I mean, looking down at myself wearing an old t-shirt and a pair of pajama pants. Like I can't imagine someone just lounging around their room like that, all made up ready. Like they were going to a party, but Lori comes out, She's on her way to a party. She's got a date. The feeling we get is that she really hasn't been at school long, that she is a freshman. She's new to this. This is the first time she's really branched out from her father 
that she's been away from home and it really feels like it's been a shorter time for her than the time frame of canon would suggest that you know if school started at the beginning of September or the end of August that this is at least out past the end of November by the way the episode order got shuffled this didn't air in September but even relative to the time frame of the series it feels like this is more like one of the first weeks back at school and somehow it got transplanted later into the year, which is just another odd continuity thing, but it's something they really couldn't change after the fact because of the filming difficulties. Uh, she's wearing her pinstripe button-down long sleeve shirt and a mini skirt. And it's just like, okay, maybe if you're going to class or whatever, but you're going to a party, hun. At least wear something a little bit festive, like the pale button-down long sleeve shirt. <laughs> nah. So her roommate gives her a snazzy red halter top to change into. And it's really interesting because in the original cut scene of this scene, Lori's wearing a completely different top, sort of more innocent looking like ruffly with actual sleeves instead of a halter top. And it's it just paints her in an entirely different light in this halter top she's uncomfortable wearing and uh, her roommate, as she leaves, says, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And she says, Lori says, there's nothing you wouldn't do. And her roommate agrees that that's probably correct, which doesn't bode well for the poor roommate in a episode about a morality tale. <laughs> I mean, the Hookman legend is a morality tale. You know, the, the Hookman comes after teenagers being morally suspect they're they're doing naughty things in their car or whatever even the other legend that's incorporated in here that I'll talk about when we get there is also based on morality and what happens if if you fail those moral standards it's consequences for your actions sort of morality tales that became urban legends because it's it's a scary way to convince people to behave in a moral fashion so lori goes on her date well, they were supposed to go to a party, but they end up under a bridge. And this bridge gets used in a lot of episodes of Supernatural. So I'll probably refer to it eventually again as the Hookman Bridge. But we see this bridge a lot, uh, this overpass. And this was this a similar location to the original cutscene. But uh, they weren't directly under the bridge in the cutscene. They were quite a ways away from it. But you could see it in the distance. So they changed the location even to incorporate the bridge into the Hookman's M.O. of dangling the boyfriend above the car. He ends up dangling from the bridge, which is interesting because pilot episode where they're on the bridge and they have to jump off the bridge to escape a different moral judgment from the woman in white. So apparently under the bridge is a bad place to be if you're morally suspect. I think it's also important to note here that Lori is not an unwilling participant in the necking, in the kissing. And she questions why he's brought her to this place. You know, he just makes an excuse that, oh, I w it just we can't be early to the party. We have to be fashionably late or whatever is the implication. She's like, I, I think you brought me here on purpose. And she goes in to kiss him. She's a completely willing participant in that. It's only when his hand begins to go under her the strap of her blouse that she's just 
like, no, no, that's a step too far. And he is like, it's okay. And he backs off, but then he goes right back to it and she pushes him away. And that's when we see the dead end sign getting scraped by the hook man. We see him begin to distract them from their moral failing here of him not taking the no and her continuing to be behave in a a fashion that is deemed immoral by going further than just kissing, which is weird because she was a willing participant in that first bit. But as soon as she said, no, I guess it triggered the hook man to come or when she reached a point where she considered it to be beyond what she was morally okay with that it triggers the hook man's actions and it's it's minor minor differences between the cut scene and this scene in the cut scene they both have their phones and they're trying to call for help or whatever but in this scene it's her father that tries to call her and she declines to answer she doesn't want to talk to her dad when she's out here smooching in the woods with a boy she's perfectly willing to be here she's like nope i'm not going to answer that it's just a reminder of this force of morality in her life that has dictated what is and what isn't moral and we'll find out when he we find out he's a priest it makes it even even more so but she didn't answer the call from him and then the rest of this all tumbles into place. So the whole thing is the morality tale of the original urban legend. So Rich, as the, her boyfriend or her date, at, after they start hearing the weird noises, the scraping sounds coming from outside the car, he does the noble thing. He gets out to investigate and tells her to stay in the car which is different from the cutscene. They both get out of the car in the cuts in the cutscene. And he tries to do the, the right thing here. He's trying to protect her, keep her in the car. He gets out to investigate. She looks around. They hear the noise again. She turns to look at the noise behind her. And Rich sees the line of getting torn across the side of his car from the ho- invisible hook. And is like, what the hell? She turns the rear window smashes out and when she turns back to the front of the car, Rich is gone. He's just gone. And she freaks out. She locks the door. She rolls up the windows. She calls out to him. Are you, where are you? And the next thing she hears is something banging and scraping against the roof of the car. She is visibly unsettled. She's huddling on the floorboards of the car Eventually, she psychs herself up enough to get out of the car and she starts running back towards the main road, uh, away from the car, away from the bridge. And something possesses her to stop and turn around and look. And she sees Rich dangling by his feet and his hands scraping the top of the car and screams. And that's the end of our cold open. It just plays out ever so slightly different in the original shot version and it's nowhere near as scary i mean even with the the ridiculous scene placeholders for scenes that they hadn't vfx yet or whatever but it's still nowhere near as intense it's more brightly lit it's just there's no horror element to the original scene so i can see why they brought kim in and i can kim manners in and i can see why they reworked a lot of this 
uh, and why it took so long to to get this episode out when it was originally slated to come so much earlier in the series. I'm really glad that they didn't leave it as it was because it would have come across a lot schlockier. And what we got instead was a lot scarier. Even still, this isn't what I would consider one of the scariest episodes of the season one. There's quite a few that had me really freaked out. But this one is disturbing in its own way. But thank goodness for Kim Manners coming in and pepping it up to what we got. (laughs) Immediately after the cold open would have been another one of our cut scenes. It's Sam on the phone at a phone booth. Remember those? Um, He's at a phone booth making a call, trying to find information about John. He's still tracking John and trying to run license plates and see if his car has been spotted. And he's contacting police departments and things. And the police identification card that Dean gave him to use is the police officer's first name is Francis. And on the card, it's a woman. And there's a line in this that they did leave in when Sam just thanks the person on the phone and goes back to the table where Dean's working on the computer. But Dean makes a joke. He says, you're a half-calf double vanilla lattes getting cold over here, Francis. And Sam replies in this version, bite me. But in the cut scene, the whole reason Dean called him Francis was because his ID card was for a police officer named Francis. It's F-R-A-N-C-I-S is a man's name. But, you know, it it was very hard for it made it more difficult for Sam. And in the original version, there was a, a line in there about how Dean should try and get more gender appropriate ID cards for him or something to that effect. And it's just odd that you know it's I'm glad they cut that joke because that's really but you know it's also in character with Dean but Francis is a guy's name Sam is not wrong there um but it it made his life harder than it needed to be that was the extent of that particular cut scene and that does explain the why Dean was calling him Francis in the scene that actually aired Sam didn't get any information on John. So he goes back and Dean starts telling him about a case he's found that's only about 100 miles from where they are currently. So they head off to Ankeny, Iowa to investigate the invisible man because Dean insists that John probably just does not want to be found, which is why they can't find him. So they show up in town. No idea who the witness was to the to the crime so they don't have anyone to talk to all they have is the frat house where the victim of of this horrible murder lived so they just show up at the frat house say they're fraternity brothers from out of state they've just transferred to the university and the fraternity brothers don't even question it they just let them in the house and let them move in and like That was a normal thing for people to do without any sort of warning. (laughs) They just randomly showed up. Hi, we're your fraternity brothers from out of state. Like, I'm sure that would fly at any fraternity in the country, right? They'd never even bother to check on that sort of thing. They just let you in the house, (laughs) which, okay, sure, whatever. So they get assigned apparently to be roommates with the dude who paints himself purple for football games. Dean sits down and makes Sam 
paint the guy's back purple. Except Dean picks up a magazine, backside magazine, and sits down and he's paging through it. And he's not even looking at the magazine. He's watching Sam paint this guy's back instead, which always struck me as interesting that, you know, he could have been looking at pictures of naked or mostly naked women. And yet instead he's looking at the dude getting his back painted purple. But they ask him about the guy who who had been killed. They said that they had heard the rumor that he, somebody had been killed. Murph, the purple man, tells them, yeah, he was on a date with Lori Sorensen. This, you know, she's super hot and a freshman and the reverend's daughter. And that leads them to the church where they will meet Lori. But this is where we begin our journey into Sam and Dean's respective attitudes towards faith. Sam and Dean arrive at the church in time for the end of the Sunday morning sermon, where the pastor is talking about Rich, who had died, protecting his daughter and mourning his death. Sam and Dean walk into the church in the middle of his sermon. Sam allows the door to swing shut behind him, and it makes a slamming noise and interrupts the sermon. Dean gives him a little glare like, What's wrong with you, man? They go head into the church. They both sit down in the back row pew. Lori acknowledges Sam. He smiles at her. The pastor reaches the end of the sermon and and asks everyone to pray. Everyone in the church bows their head, including Sam, except for Dean. Dean just continues to look straight ahead. Sam kind of elbows him like, dude, do the thing. You know, you're supposed to, this is how you perform religion. (laughs) And... We don't know if it's because of any deeper association with religious faith in Sam. Like maybe he went to church when he was at Stanford. Maybe Jessica was religious. We don't we don't know any of that at this point. But Dean's way of performative behavior was not letting the door slam in a room full of people who are being quiet. And Sam's performative behavior in a church is actually performing the religious behaviors. Whether he's praying or not, we don't know at this point, but bowing his head was important. Even though nobody else was looking at them in the entire church, everybody else's head was bowed. They're in the back pew. This is what Sam wanted Dean to perform. Nobody could see them doing this even. It wasn't hurting anybody for Dean to sit there quietly and not bow his head. But it's just an interesting, like somehow that not bowing his head counted as a mark of disrespect for Sam. It, he couldn't tolerate that. He needed he needed Dean to perform the act of respect. Meanwhile, Dean has no faith in anything, and to him, it's just silly. As they leave church, Lori and her roommate are talking. Her roommate wants her to come hang out with her and her friends, their sorority sisters, watch movies, do tequila shots, just chilling their sorority sisters together. And Lori's like, it's Sunday night. I have to have dinner. You know, it's that's the night she has dinner with her dad. It's like a thing for her. And her sorority sister's like, come on, you're allowed to have fun. You're in college. You're allowed to have fun. And Lori's just not into it. She promises that she'll try to get done with her dinner with her dad early enough to participate in the fun with her sorority sister's. After her sorority sister leaves, Sam and Dean come up and Sam introduces himself. 
Sam immediately makes a connection with Lori. Dean says they sought her out because they wanted to say how sorry they were after hearing about what happened to her. And Sam says, yeah, I kind of understand what you're going through because I've seen something terrible happen to someone as well. And it's something that you don't forget. Lori's dad comes over, the pastor comes over, and Dean puts on the act of faith, says that was an inspiring sermon, tells the pastor they're new in town and what they, they're looking for a church to join, and draws the pastor away so that Sam continue continue to make his connection with Lori. So Dean is, has several different motives for letting Sam talk to Lori. First of all, he's connecting with a girl his age who is college girl who Sam is clearly into and she's clearly into him a little bit. She smiled back at him. Dean's not unaware of people being interested in in his brother because, you know, he's always looking out for Sam. He wants Sam to have nice things. But also, Sam has that connection. He saw something terrible happen to his college girlfriend. Lori just saw something terrible happen to her college boyfriend. They have something to bond about and talk about. And Sam has an in to get information from her about what she saw. Lori doubted her own story. She worried that the police blamed her for the fact that they didn't have any leads on a suspect and who hurt her boyfriend. She blames herself for that because she doubts her own story because she she doesn't believe it could have happened that way, an invisible killer. And Sam is probably the first person to tell her Just because it seems crazy doesn't mean it isn't real. So he believes her. She trusts him now because he has given her a reason to not doubt herself. Sam and Dean head off to another library to look up information about what they believe might be the Hookman. Based on what Lori told them about how she found Rich hanging upside down above her car, the scratches, the tire punctures, they attribute all of that to the Hookman legend. The fact that she couldn't see him might mean that the Hookman isn't a man, but a spirit. So now they're looking through the library, through boxes of death records of everybody who's died in the area going back a hundred years. Dean gets to make some jokes about, is this what you did for four years? Just sitting in libraries looking through dusty things. And I'm very, very pleased that they actually stated that Sam was at college for four years. So that when we go back to the pilot episode and they make the joke about it's been two years since I saw you, Sam had been gone all four years. Dean may have seen him two years ago for something else, but he was at college for four years. Let's just accept that as canon and move on now. They had to go through the records all the way back to 1862 to find a case of a suspicious death that matched the M.O. of the Hookman. They find a preacher named Jacob Carnes who got so upset about the red light district in town that he went on a murder spree one night and killed 13 prostitutes in one night, left some of them bloodied in their beds, strung others up from trees to warn against, quote-unquote, sins of the flesh. So this was his whole... Emma was any sort of carnal activity, any sort of sex, any sort of what he deemed immoral activity would be punished by death. Carnes had lost one of his hands and it would have been replaced by a silver hook that he had used to commit all the murders. We cut to a scene of the preacher 
dropping Lori off back at her sorority house after their dinner together. He's very judgmental. She she expresses her concern for him living alone since her, her mother died. And instead of him saying, no, it's fine, you go enjoy your life and be happy, he gets on her, wor- you know, worried about her. She, she's like, I'm perfectly safe. There's 22 girls in, in that house. I'm fine. You know, I'm not alone. And he says that's what he's worried about. He's worried about her in there with all those girls and the things that go on inside that house, the drinking, the partying. It's interesting that she comes back inside to a darkened bedroom where her roommate is already asleep in bed. And it's like not a party. They don't party all the time. They're sometimes they're just friends and they get to learn how to be adults together because that's what adults do. But her father is so overprotective of her that he doesn't even want her to have any sort of an experience at all. He's got his strict moral standards and probably even more so than a lot of parents being a pastor and preaching about morality every week. But she's right too. 18 is very young for an adult, but this is the age at which kids go out into the world and learn to be human being adults on their own. Lori gets to the top of the stairs outside of her room And notices a weird scratch along the wall. And she stops and just, we follow the scratch with the camera. She's a little bit freaked out, but nobody else seems to have noticed it or seems worried about it. So she goes into her room, sees her roommate asleep, decides not to turn on the light and wake her up. She whispers to Taylor to see if she's awake. Taylor doesn't answer. She goes into the closet to change her clothes and comes back into her room goes to sleep, thinks everything is fine, and listeners, things were not fine. We cut to a scene of Sam actually using one of the spotlights on the Impala the first few seasons of the show when they had the spotlights. You don't really get to see them used very often, but this was the first time we actually saw them shining one of the spotlights around. They're driving out to the location on Nine Mile Road underneath the bridge where... Uh, Rich had been murdered and they're looking at the scene. This scene is another iconic moment in the show. The very first time that Sam ever hears about rock salt being used in a shotgun shell. Apparently this was Dean's creation. We've seen them use salt in the show to put across door frames or to dispel spirits. But this is the first time we see the ubiquitous shotgun shell filled with rock salt. They they get out of the car. Dean hands Sam a shotgun. And Sam's like, well, if it is a spirit, you know, buckshot's not going to do anything to it. Dean hands him a bunch of shot salt shells. And Sam's like, what? Why did we never think of this before? And Dean's like, I don't know, you've been in college for four years kind of thing, you know? Like, things happen. Get with the program. For some unexplained reason, though, the weapon Dean seems to pick up looks like a length of rope. We never find out what this was for. We never find out what he intended to do with it, uh, how he intended to tie up a ghost. I don't know. But we never figure that one out. They go off walking in the opposite direction of of the bridge, which is kind of weird because you'd think they'd walk towards the bridge uh, where the guy was hung instead of away from it. But Sam holds up the shotgun. They hear something in the bushes, but it's actually a police officer who sees them with the gun in the woods, makes them drop the weapon, get down on their knees, and they're arrested. 
I have to say, I also really appreciate this scene for not only implying that Dean had been the one to invent the rock salt uh, shotgun shells, but the fact that Dean was proudly aware of the fact that it was a brilliant move. He's like, you don't have to be a college graduate to be a genius. And he is. He is so smart. <laughs> you know, I don't need to cheerlead for him for being smart, but my God, Sam never thought of that one either, but Dean did. So after the cop leaves them face down in the dirt, we go back to Lori's room. She gets dressed in her pajamas in the bathroom, turns out the light. You never turns on the light in her room and just gets under the covers and goes to bed. After she tucks herself in and rolls over, they showed her roommate kind of tossing and turning in her sleep. But after Lori goes to sleep, we hear some weird breathing and see a figure lurking in the corner behind her door. When Lori wakes up in the morning, she sees blood on the floor and looks up to see her roommate brutally murdered in bed, carved into the wall above her roommate's bed. It says, aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light? Which Dean will later say was a classic Hookman reference, but it's not. It's a completely different urban legend. The aren't, aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light legend? completely unrelated to the hook man but it is a different scary urban legend with a similar moral to it as sam and dean are finally leaving the police department in the morning dean tells sam that he got him out of there that he argued with the police to let them go because it was all a prank because they sam was apparently a pledge to the fraternity And he was out there pranking Sam as part of the pledge process. The cops were trying to hold them on a weapons charge for the shotgun. But Dean was like, oh, no, it's filled with rock salt. We were hunting ghosts. It's part of the the hazing ritual. The cops apparently believed it, weren't happy about it, gave him a warning and let them both go. Dean's all proud of how he matlocked his way out of this. As they're walking back to the car, a bunch of the police start running out of the sheriff's department towards their cars and speed off towards, we're presuming, Lori's residence where her roommate has just been murdered. So Sam and Dean, of course, have to follow. At the sorority house that's now a crime scene, we see Lori sitting in the back of an ambulance wrapped in a blanket looking scared. Obviously, this is the second murder that she's witnessed in the span of a few days. Her father is talking to one of the police officers who is saying we can't just let her go because she's now directly connected to two murders. Her father argues on her behalf saying either arrest her or let her come home. As he's talking to the cop, Lori sees Sam and Dean drive past. And for just a moment, she looks really hopeful as Sam looks over at her and sees her there. But Sam and Dean just continue driving on. They pull around to a side street and park their car because Sam and Dean are here to investigate. (laughs) They're going to sneak in. I think it's really hilarious as as Dean parks along this street where there's not a single other car parked for as far as you can see. Where he parks is literally right in front of a fire hydrant. And Dean, you could have parked anywhere along this whole dumb street. And you parked in the one spot where there's a fire hydrant. You big dummy. When there's cops literally around the corner, there's nobody on this street at all. 
when they come back to the car in a few scenes later, he's going to pull a parking ticket off the windshield. And it's like, what did you expect, Dean? Like, honestly, you could have parked 15 feet in either direction and not gotten a ticket. But it kind of makes you wonder, did he ever pay that ticket? I doubt it. I sincerely doubt it. But, like, what happened? Technically, his his ID is already a dead person. Like, what is his car registered under? It, it just makes you wonder how this universe works in ways that are clearly very different from our own because they would have run his plate seeing they came back to this dead guy who <laughs> had been convicted of a bunch of murder, you know, or had been accused of a bunch of murders. So obviously the car is not registered in his name even back then. It's just, it makes me think about the, a long, weird chain of stuff that becomes relevant even in later seasons like thinking about that episode where they have bad luck in season 15 where their luck's gone totally sour because Chuck's screwing with them but one of the things Dean gets weirded out over and considers a thing of bad luck is getting a parking ticket when he's parked in a no parking zone because apparently he does that a lot at this one particular little convenience store that he went to and Never got a ticket before, but now he did. Well, look, Dean, this is your normal luck. You park in a place that's no parking, and eventually you're going to get a ticket. Just like you did in episode seven of the whole entire series. And we get that adorable shot of Dean as he's peeking around the corner, seeing sorority girls. But there's also cops over there, and he's keeping an eye on them, too. And about the naked pillow fight. And I just love that shot of Dean. He just looks so innocent and fresh and unsullied by the narrative yet. But it's funny that he has to boost Sam up by his foot to get Sam up to the second floor of this building. And Dean apparently just gets up without a boost. Like, the taller dude needed the boost and the shorter dude is able to get up on his own. Which says a lot for Dean's physicality, I guess. Or how he is still willing to boost Sam up. It's just an interesting character play. Also, with this swarm of police and medical personnel and investigators, nobody notices them sneaking into the building. How did they not notice them up there? They weren't being particularly covert. I mean, they were sort of covert, but you'd think that at a crime scene, at a murder scene that was this fresh, that all the investigators are still there. There's still crime scene tape up. None of them noticed these two guys just scaling the building like Spider-Man. Also convenient that in a building that houses 22 young women... They happened to find the one unlocked window on the balcony where they'd climbed up to sneak into the building that was in the closet and bathroom of the room where the murder took place. 22 women, so you figure at least 11 bedrooms in this house, if they're sharing doubles, at least 11 bedrooms in this house, and that happens to be the one that they snuck into. Good planning there without any actual planning. (laughs) Convenient TV convenience. Here's another one for the Cristo list of things that we never hear about again. As they're looking at the, aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light carved into the wall? Dean taps his nose and says it was definitely a spirit. Sam replies, yes, I've never smelled ozone this strong before. That's not something we ever hear them mention, whether it's a sign that they continue to look for after this or if it's just an afterthought. 
it's just never mentioned again, the ozone smell of, of ghosts. Sam notices that the symbol carved on the wall beneath the words is the same as the symbol that would had been part of Jacob Carnes' hook hand. They firmly believe now that it is the ghost of Jacob Carnes who died in 1862, or killed 13 women in 1862 and had once been the pastor of that church. After Carnes was executed for his crimes, he was buried in an unmarked grave at a local cemetery. Of course, unmarked grave. But Dean also suspects that Laurie is somehow connected to why his spirit is active again now. So they apparently split up to do a little more research. Sam looks into the history a little more to figure out why Carnes is active again. And he finds a a pattern of the priests at this church being blamed for murders that fit the same pattern, like throughout the church's history, going back to the 1930s. And he believes that it could be like a poltergeist that has either latched on to the priest and it could be the pastor who it's feeding off his sense of morality and being brought into existence by that. Or that he's actively summoned the spirit of Carnes to inflict his sense of morality on others. They're not sure which it is, but either way, Dean agrees that Sam needs to keep an eye on Lori to make sure that she remains safe. But they're still at this party at their supposedly, quote unquote, their frat house. A woman is giving Dean... Dean the eye leaning against the pool table and Sam says well if I'm going to go look out for Lori what what are you going to do and Dean makes a face and he's really upset because he's really digging this part of the college experience you know the party part he's like well I guess I'm going to go look for that unmarked grave so poor Dean's out in this graveyard and he's dug up the grave he found it he dug it up found the bones salts and burns them this is the first time we really see a full-fledged dug up grave salt and burn in the entire series so another milestone we've hit but we see dean walking through the graveyard alone with the flashlight and carrying his shovel and it's almost like he has a sixth sense in this he's looking around he hears a noise he stops he listens he he keeps walking And eventually he finds a small marker that only has the symbol, the crossed lines symbol from the wall and from Carnes' hook hand carved into it. So technically, I guess it is a marked grave. It's just not marked with his name or any other sort of reference as to who he is other than the cross symbol that he is associated with. So Dean starts digging. Meanwhile, Sam is over by the church outside of Lori's house with her father before this was I believe what's the final cut scene of the episode it's Lori's at at her dad's house and for some reason after having witnessed her second murder in a week she's doing laundry weird thing for her to be doing (laughs) but the scene is that she's doing her father's laundry too and she finds a condom or a condom wrapper in the laundry That's the entirety of the cutscene, but that is the groundwork for why she and her father were having this argument about who he was having an affair with. While he's standing out on the sidewalk, Sam sees Lori and her father arguing 
inside. And then it cuts back to Dean in the graveyard digging. He's dug up most of this grave and he looks dirty and exhausted and he's huffing and puffing. And he says, okay, that's it. Next time I get to watch the cute girl's house. And we'll see this will be a pattern over the course of the entire series is that Usually, if there's a cute girl whose house needs watching, Sam is the one who gets to do it. Dean is the one who gets to do the dirty work most of the time. And it's by design, really. Dean, of course, we know is very protective of Sam. He will always make life easier for Sam if he can. He will always give Sam the chance to do the quote-unquote normal part of the work like investigating the case in the library where it's clean and safe and where the cute girl is hanging out or whatever. But Dean will almost always ensure that Sam is the one who gets the quote-unquote better job of the two of them. This is where Sam and Lori get to bond over the fact that they both feel cursed. She said, you know, he seems sweet. He was just sitting outside of her house keeping an eye on the place because he was worried about her because so many bad things had happened around her. They get to bond a little bit about how they they both feel cursed. People around them, people they care about die. Dean shows us the step-by-step of how you salt and burn bones, sprinkle the salt. They made a very big point of showing us the canister of salt, the canister of lighter fluid, and him lighting the matches, the whole book of matches and dropping it into the grave making it very clear that this is supposed to banish the ghost. But Lori is now also questioning her own faith. She was raised to believe that if you do something wrong, you get punished. And she's just found out that her father, who taught her this, who raised her to believe this was a foundational truth of life, you do something wrong, you're punished for it. She's just found out that he's doing something that he would have considered wrong And yet he's receiving no punishment for it. He's having an affair with a married woman. She's in conflict between wanting to, as she said, do what she wants and be happy in her life versus, well, if I do these things that I want to do and to make myself happy, I will also be punished. It doesn't really fit. That morality does not fit with what she's learning about life. She's doubting her faith that tells her that she will get punished if she does the wrong things, that she shouldn't just go out and do what she wants and be happy, that that's the essential conflict, which is really ironic considering that's the culmination of all of Supernatural was, you know, we'll hear in season 11 when Dean gets the advice about how to live a long and happy life is to follow your heart to do what you want, to find your own happiness, to let yourself be happy, basically. That was Cass's end. He had his moment of true happiness and then was punished for it. Like, that's the morality of the entire series here, boiled down to it. They could never escape that morality of religion, of God's punishment. Criminy. I'm just going to friggin' scream. Can I just scream? Can I just like velociraptor screech for like a few minutes here and and let everybody absorb this? Because honestly, (laughs) none of them got what they wanted in the end. Everybody got the worst possible end 
because they all just wanted to be happy. Sam wanted to have a life with Eileen. He didn't get that. He was punished for wanting it. Eileen was taken away from him. Dean wanted his family and friends around him. He ended up alone, nailed to a post in an abandoned barn by a bunch of friggin' clown mimes, <laughs> vampire mimes. He didn't have Cass. That's like the one thing he would have wanted, the one thing he would have asked the universe to keep. And he didn't. Cass got sent to the empty forever, like punished for wanting to be happy. So the morality of this episode is kind of relevant to the entire rest of the series because they were supposed to be able to prove that this was not true. Just like Lori does in this episode. She discovers that you do not have to get punished for wanting to be happy, for wanting to make your own life, for wanting to make your own choices. She didn't have to live by her father's decrees of what a moral and good existence was. She was allowed to be happy. And unfortunately, Sam and Dean will never get that. Cass will never get that. Jack will never get that. And we just don't know about any of the other characters. We don't know what they got. They got, as far as we know, who knows? So I'm just going to let that sit for a moment and be mad about that for a moment. And and then I'll resume this. I need a second. (sighs) Back to where we were. So Lori and Sam have bonded over this feeling of like they're cursed, that people around them get hurt. Sam understands. Lori thinks he's sweet. She gives him a hug to like, comfort him and the hug turns into a kiss Lori turns it into a kiss Sam is willingly participating in this kiss until he pushes her away and says no I can't I can't do this and Lori completely understands and says you know it it was that someone you lost and Sam just gives her a nod you know because when this was episode three of the series this was Jess's death was very fresh for him at episode seven Even now, it still feels like a fresh wound to him. And Lori respects that. She apologizes. She's like, I'm I'm sorry. As As she's doing that, her father comes out and sees her sitting there with Sam. Angrily tells her to come in the house. She angrily tells him she'll come in when she's ready. They're not doing anything wrong. They're just having a conversation. But as Lori gets mad at her father... The ghost of Carnes appears behind him, stabs his hook into his shoulder, like into his chest, and pulls him into the house. So of course Sam goes chasing after him, pulls like pulls a shotgun out of his backpack and goes running into the house. Poor Lori's probably flipping out at this point because this guy that was just, you know, she was just having a tender moment with goes running into her house after her father with a shotgun. I'd probably be a little freaked out. But, you know, it's full of salt rounds and it's effective. Sam is able to save the pastor's life. The next morning at the hospital, Sam's being interviewed by the police. Lori is looking after her father, who's in very serious condition. His head is all bandaged up. He's got a ventilator. He's not looking good. But the police officer interviewing Sam's the one who arrested him before and has run into him multiple times now. Sam's yes sir, no sirring him through the entire interview and is not a suspect. But Dean comes in and waves, hey brother. He doesn't even use Sam's name, which I 
kind of appreciate because he's like, what name did Sam give these guys? He doesn't know. He's not going to blow his cover. Just that he's his brother. Sam asks Dean why he didn't burn the bones. And Dean's like, what are you talking about? I did. And Sam's like, well, the, the hook man certainly did look like Carnes with the hook hand. He saw it. They also no, no longer suspect that the hook man is tied to the pastor because the pastor would have, wouldn't have sent the hook man after himself, which is odd because we do know that it's tied to Lori through her necklace and her own self blame for all of these events. Cause she begins to feel like she's cursed. The hook man does come after her, not because she commanded it to, or she sent it after herself, but because it wasn't even tied to her conscious awareness. You know what I mean? Like, in the episode about Bloody Mary and talking about guilt, it wasn't even that these people were directly responsible for the people whose deaths they felt guilty about. It's just the fact that they felt guilt for them. They felt responsible for them. The same thing with with the hook man. It's not that Lori was responsible for all of these people's death, but they all seemed to happen in proximity to her through no fault of her own, through no understanding of this problem on her own. It's just the church relic hanging around her neck that the ghost had attached itself to, unbeknownst to her. So her guilt, it was her motivations, her guilt, her her own sense of morality and her struggle with her own morality that invoked the ghost to come and kill people, up to including and including Lori herself. Sam explains why he believes that. And it's funny that Sam says, you know, she just found out her father is having an, an affair. And Dean's like, so? <laughs> like, what does that have to do with anything? There's the, the, Dean doesn't feel the guilt of the immorality of, of a sexual act. He doesn't see that as something that one should feel guilty for. It's something that he has not attached any sort of moral burden to the way Lori has. This is also really the first episode where we see a spirit has latched on to a particular item. Yes, Bloody Mary was trapped in the mirror, but that was more of the way mirrors trap souls after death that a mirror can like suck your soul in sort of and and trap you. It's not like she was bound to that particular mirror. She was trapped in it, which is slightly different. But this was the first one where a, a ghost's Bones can be burned and they, they will latch on to something that was of material importance to them during their life. In this case, Carnes's hook hand, which was, quote unquote, a part of himself. Like, he used it as the murder weapon, but it was also his appendage. It was part of his body. I've also always wondered in this episode, when we think about salting and burning bones and how that destroys the ghost why wouldn't the ghost have been destroyed when the hook hand was reforged into something new? To me, it's like that would have been more than a salt and burn, right? Reforging in a furnace, melting it down like we see them do to destroy the hook. But maybe before when it was reforged, it didn't destroy him because his bones still existed for him to latch onto. You know, Dean did dig up and burn his bones this time. So... Perhaps melting the silver down again without his bones to latch onto. He didn't have another earthly vessel to latch onto. So maybe that's 
that's why. It's At this point, it's entirely speculation. And I've written a bunch of times trying to figure out like a reason for why reforging the silver before didn't destroy the ghost and throwing it in a furnace now did. But that's the best I can come up with. So that's what we've got. They find that after his execution, his hook was donated to the church where Lori's father is still the pastor, which explains why priests at that church over the years had been accused of committing murders that we would find out are attributable to Carnes's ghost. Sam discovers that, yes, his hook was reforged into something else. They don't know what. So they go to the church and they just start melting down everything that even looks remotely silver in the entire building, in the church, in their house. Gosh, that's a lot of stuff to melt down in that little furnace. Lori's still at the hospital with her father, so they are able to get in, break in. They have all the freedom in the world to search the church building and their residence for anything silver. And Sam's like, okay, well, I'll take the house. So Dean is going to get the church. As he's going off, Dean teases Sam. Yeah, just stay out of her underwear drawer. Sam gives him a look like, why would I have even thought to go in her underwear drawer? We've already seen Sam push her away like he's being the gentleman with her. It's just funny because given the chance, you know, Dean probably would have looked through her underwear drawer. We next see Dean in the boiler room in the basement of the church, we assume, throwing everything silver plates, silverware, little trinkets into the furnace. Sam comes in with a bag full of silver goods from the house They're still throwing things in the furnace when the floorboards above them rattle and some dust drops through the ceiling. They run upstairs past a bulletin board that says with decorated with flowers and rain that says reaping with joy. And this is one reason why I love Jerry Wanick reaping with joy. (laughs) They see that it's, Lori, who has returned to the church, she's sitting in one of the pews, feeling guilty and needing comfort. So Sam goes to comfort her while Dean goes back down to finish melting down the silver. Lori's crying, blaming herself for everything. And she tells Sam, you know, she believes it's all her fault because she read in the Bible about avenging angels. And Sam tries to reassure her, this guy is no angel. That's the first mention of angels in the entire series, you know, that as a potential for something that even could be real. But Sam agrees, the, t- tells her, this is no angel. This is, this is something evil. But Lori's upset is that she might be responsible for what happened to her father. The fact that her father is so seriously hurt. She feels responsible for that because she believed they should have been punished. She believed they deserved to be punished for their sins and believed it was her fault that they were punished and now feels that she judged them too harshly, that they probably didn't deserve to be punished for what they had done, that it's her that deserves to be punished for her even just daring to think that they should be punished for their sins. And it's just so heartbreaking to think that she would have believed that it was her fault, that she could be guilty of this, and that her crime of 
thinking just thought crimes of thinking that these people deserve punishment for for their behavior was worse than anything that she previously believed they deserved punishment for like her crimes are far worse in her mind and it's just heartbreaking and i'm so glad she gets to have this bird lifted off of her very soon but first they have to run from the hook man the candles blow out in the church and Sam is like, come on, we have to go. We have to go now. I don't know how they're going to run, but he thinks they have a chance to run away from this. Everywhere they turn inside the building, the hook man seems to be there or follow them. Lori tries to back herself into a corner to protect herself and the hook man's behind her. Sam pulls her away and he takes the blow from the hook meant for her. The hookman gets mad about this and sends her scooting across the room. Sam runs after her, fighting him off. Sam gets flung into another bookshelf and the bookshelf falls on top of him. He gets free and he tries to do something to confront this ghost to stop it from attacking Lori. But he's unarmed. He's injured. All of a sudden, Dean runs up from up from where he had been downstairs, burning the rest of the silver and yells Sam drop and Sam does and he fires salt and blows away the ghost for now the ghost is still gonna be able to come back Sam and Dean are perplexed that the ghost is still able to remain there despite having melted every bit of silver in the building and suggest well maybe they missed something Sam turns to Lori and sees her necklace the silver necklace that's been around her neck the entire time and the cross charm on it that her father gave her that was supposedly a church heirloom. She's only been wearing it since since she started college. So that was her gift as she moved into her new life. And unfortunately, the gift came with the burden of a, a serial killer Puritan type. Bad thing to take to your freshman year of college. Sam rips the necklace off. Dean tosses him the gun. Sam tosses Dean the necklace. Dean runs down to go throw the necklace in the furnace, leaving Sam with the shotgun as the hook claws up the walls again. They can't see the hook, man. He's invisible. But Sam's trying to shoot at him, trying to reload the shotgun one-handed because his other hand's been injured. Dean melts down the cross, and just as the hook man's about to close in on them, his hook melts and disintegrates and then his entire body catches fire and we see our first what will become fairly standard for for a ghost flame out it's a little bit more drawn out and detailed than we'll see in future episodes but this is our first sort of this is what ghosts look like when they flame out not the broken glass of bloody mary not not the puddling of the woman in white but the first actual flame out of a ghost the next morning outside there's an ambulance there sam's getting his hand bandaged up dean is talking with one of the police officers about what they saw that they saw the the man with the hook hand and that you know they fought him off and he ran away and the police officer is about to say you know like listen you and your brother and dean turns away and walks away he's like yeah we know we're le- don't worry we're leaving town very simply stated that's exactly what the cops wanted (laughs) that's exactly what dean wanted to give them (laughs) dean lets sam have his final few minutes with laurie 
she's like, I don't, I still don't understand, really understand what happened. And Sam said, you know, you everything's going to be okay. Dean is watching in his side view mirror of the car. He watches Sam just walk away from her. No kiss goodbye. No, you know, exchange of numbers. Dean even offers well, we could stay. And Sam's like, no. And, and they just drive away as Boston's Peace of Mind plays. That song is the title of another Supernatural episode, Peace of Mind. Season 14, episode 15, the one where Sam and Cass go off and investigate the 50s-style town where the, everyone in town is being mind-controlled by the mayor guy who owns the ice cream shop. <laughs> and that's the connotation I, I still hear when I see that, when I hear that song, is that episode and peace of mind being complete mind control. But in this episode, Lori was able to cast that off. She was able to stop punishing herself every time she broke one of her father's rules. She was able to have that burden destroyed that she doesn't have to carry that around her neck anymore. She's allowed to go out and allowed to make her own fun and be happy how she wants to be happy without that burden of what her father would have wanted for her or what she presumed would be the moral and just and even if it conflicted with what she wanted and what would make her happy she could still make her own life for herself and stop punishing herself every time she fails to live up to her father's ideals of morality or what he would want for her or for himself even that she can forgive him for things she believes he should have been punished for in the past. Life doesn't have to be do perfect or be punished. There's more to life than that. And there's not a force controlling what she does and how she's punished for it. So she's been freed of that. But Sam and Dean, they're still on this ride. I've been looking over my past notes that I've written about this episode. And years ago, I wrote about how we're seeing Sam and Dean's early seeds of their personalities in this episode. Like we saw in the pilot that Sam didn't really enjoy parties. The one party we saw him go to, he got dragged to in in the pilot episode, the Halloween party, because he claimed he didn't like Halloween, but it's kind of clear he didn't really like parties much either. And he confirms that in this episode, in the party scene, Dean fits himself right in. He blends in. He's perfectly at home and comfortable and happy at a college party where he's inserted himself into college life as far as the fraternity house where they're staying goes. He knows he's not there long term. He knows he can just play this role while he's here before they go off to another town and another case. And for Sam, he just never really, even though he spent four years in college, he never really fits into the college scene. Yes, he bonds with Lori over their common losses and their common trauma and their common belief that they are both cursed somehow. People around them keep dying. He bonds with her over that, but they're both sort of on the fringes, on the edges. Lori never really fit in with her sorority. She still held to going to Sunday dinner with her dad rather than hanging out with her new friends and and watching movies and, and getting to know each other and bonding that way. For her, and like for Sam, they hadn't really fit in. 
They both had lives that were felt very different from the experience of college. But Dean is showing us his chameleon nature. He can fit himself in anywhere. He fit himself in as a cop in last week's episode, you know, when Sam assigned him that role. That's the role he tried to play until the shapeshifter burned that role. It's just Dean's nature. He can make himself fit into whatever situation they happen to be in. Whatever town they roll into, he can adopt a different persona, a different identity, a different reason for being there and just roll with it. And if he has a good time in that town, so be it as long because he doesn't have to carry it with him. It's not baggage to him the way it is to Sam. It's not that either of their coping mechanisms are particularly healthy, but they're just different from one another. Dean doesn't try to fit in. He doesn't try and bear the truth of himself. He just fits in and rolls with it. Sam just really hasn't figured out how to do that yet. He carries this weight with him. We'll see both of them grow through this for the entire series. And we'll see them, Sam deal with this in a lot more depth. His family history versus what he sees as freedom in next week's episode. Season 1, episode 8 bugs and I know everybody thinks this is like the worst episode and it's terrible but there's so much good character stuff in this episode in next week's episode that we'll talk about because I never had the hatred for I mean I don't like the bugs the bugs can especially with the cicadas about to pop out of the ground here right now I'm not looking forward to that but there is so much good character stuff in that episode that I'm really looking forward to getting into. In the meantime, you can always find me online at SPN George on Tumblr or Mittens Morgul on Tumblr and the Discord server. Just hit me up one of those places and I'll give you an invite if you're not already a member. We've been having some nice chats over there. And again, I'm really sorry I went off on that tangent about the series finale, but Honestly, that's probably going to happen a lot. (laughs) Every time I see something that fits into one of those core themes that the finale just decided to trounce, I'm going to say it (laughs) and I'm going to get mad and I'm probably going to end up pacing around my living room for 20 minutes until I can calm myself down enough to continue the podcast. Such is the nature of this show. Anyways, thanks for listening. I hope you all are having a lovely week. Bye-bye. Um, thanks, Kat. I really needed you to jump over my microphone. Thank you.